0: All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. So uh, we are in John chapter six. John chapter six. We will be picking up uh, about in the neighborhood of verse 41, and and hopefully we'll finish the chapter out uh, today. Um, before we get going, um, if you'll grab your little uh, New American Standard. Uh, verse um, from John 20:31, our the what we might call our theme verse for the book, and um, and for our study for sure. All right, John 20:31. It says, "But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name." So many times when we've read that verse, uh, you can see the passage that we talk about uh, relate back to that verse so that indeed John has kept to his focus. He has done what he said he was going to do and try to present uh, a story, to present some evidence, uh, to present some examples uh, so that people would believe in Jesus and that is going to be heavily focused um, in our in our passage today so you'll recall uh, this whole chapter which is really sweeping in terms of its scope uh, has uh, several thematic elements in this chapter that hold it together you'll remember it started off with the feeding of the 5,000 uh, all the people there they've been listening to Jesus teach and preach all day. It got late. Um, Jesus presents this problem uh, to the disciples. Uh, What are we going to do with these people? Uh, They look hungry. And we know the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And and that kind of establishes this theme of uh, bread from heaven. We Recall that we had this little interlude where they travel across um, uh, stormy waters uh, in the middle of the night. And uh, the calming of the sea and so forth. We went through that sign of of his uh, power over natural elements. Uh, And then they get to the other side there in the region of Capernaum, and now there has been some teaching. And one of the um, uh, main themes of his teaching there was this big statement that he said um, back in verse 35 um he says i am the bread of life now prior to that there'd been this discussion amongst the crowd there uh hey what number one if and i'm paraphrasing here but if you are who it sounds like you're claiming to be uh prophet rabbi you know, we're not sure how much credit we're going to give you yet, but if if you are who you claim to be, uh, what are you going to do to prove that to us? Uh, so there were apparently people who had been participants of the miracle uh, feeding, uh, but then there were probably new people that were uh, just there in Capernaum, and they want to know, uh, what are you going to do? And then picking up this, what are you going to do, um, they're asking what work do we need to do? Uh, How, what's your system, rabbi? What, uh, if we're gonna be following your way, uh, what would be the rules? Uh, And that's kind of how it was. Every rabbi had their set of things that they focused on. It's, you know, uh, probably like uh, football coaches, many of whom are on the hot seat right now because they're not winning. but they're they're known for a certain thing, right? oh this one's good with defense this one's good with you know just burning up lots of passes and has an exciting offense and all these things. So they have a theme for their their philosophy, their coaching philosophy, Well, every rabbi had a theme uh, as well, and so they 're trying to get a feel for Jesus as he is uh, you know just enlarging his public ministry. Where do you stand on this? What do we need to do and he there's this concept of working and labor. That sort, of, Those sorts of words start to pop in there. And then he shifts it a little bit and brings it down. Okay, stop thinking about the miracle and what signs I'm going to do and start focusing on maybe something different. And that's what he introduces there in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never Thirst. So this hunger and thirst and come unto me and those sorts of things, we'll see that echoed in some of our Old Testament passages that we'll hit. And then we talked a little bit last week that there are elements uh, in this passage uh, about how do we come to Christ. Uh, and there are things there that talk about the sovereignty of God and how he has given us to Jesus Uh We'll see later in the book when, when Jesus is, is praying what, what many people call the Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer, but the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's, the Jesus Prayer to God. Um, and, uh, and he highlights there, you know, these are the ones that you've given me. And we, talk, we see in here that um, verse 39, it is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day so everyone that he's given me uh, I am going to be there for them forever so we have this concept of the sovereignty of God and um, that God is drawing people to him that that it's basically God's initiative as to who are called to him and and this is what's led through the various camps through the years of Calvinistic approaches to salvation or Arminian approaches to salvation, the latter of which emphasizes this free will aspect of whosoever will may come. And so we'll see both elements of that. And whether this is a cop-out or just brilliant, um, I think it's all true, right? And I'm not unique in that view. Uh, I think many people realize, hey, you know, I, I can't Synthesize this all together uh but I'm simple enough where I don't feel like I have to right uh some people like to have a system and they like to have everything buttoned up so tightly that they can win an argument, win a debate, and they they just they've got it down and if you're gonna just do debating points i'd probably there's probably a little bit more. Uh, weight, I would say, toward the sovereignty of God angle, but you can't ignore the "whosoever will may come" angle, right? I think it's—I think they're both true. I—I learned that there's a name for those of us, if I can say it. It sounds a lot like cannibalism, uh, which it's not. Um, it's compatibilism. In other words, these two views on their face of being contrary to each other, are actually compatible. They can live alongside each other just fine. And so I finally found out what I am. I'm a compatibilist. (laughs) Uh, Just be careful who you say that around. Uh, Especially when we're going to be talking later about uh, eating body parts. So that's our introduction. So verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And it's worth mentioning again for those who weren't here just to have that echoing in your mind as you think about Not just John 3.16, but John 3.15, where he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we remember when it talks about the Son of Man be lifted up, that that word, lifted up, really meant what? It was a word they used for crucifixion, because that's what you did. You lifted a guy up on a pole. That's what you did. So when he says, lift it up, everybody kind of knew that's what John was talking about. Back to verse 41. We did a little preview of this last week. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, "Is not this Jesus the Son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, "I've come down from heaven?" So in other words, you know, like any good cricket, cr- cricket. <laughs> critic. Not that crickets aren't good. They say, you can eat them, I haven't. I have fish with them, though. Um, like any good critic, um, you just attack whatever your best angle is. And so now they're attacking his parentage, saying, how can you say you came down from heaven because we actually know where you came from? And the, the presupposition is that um, Mary and Joseph have moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and they know them, right? So they're having a really hard time uh, saying this local boy, um, or at least local parents, um, hey, we know you. This is a little bit hard to swallow. How can you say you came down from heaven? Verse 43, he said, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's that that drawing. And he says, I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So everyone who has heard and learned from, let's see, Yeah, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So this this drawing of God, um, we know that there is a work of the Holy Spirit that literally will open a person's eyes and open their heart to what's happening. And the, the metaphor here is that they will be taught. So Jesus is quoting... You don't have to turn to this necessarily, but in Isaiah 54, verse 13, it says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Like we've said before, many of these folks really knew their Bible. Jesus knew his Bible. uh, And when he pulls out a verse like this, it calls to mind, usually an entire section. So it just so happens, that's in our Bible, Isaiah fifty-four thirteen. just so happens just a few verses later, 55, the next chapter, verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Remember what we said early on? It says, come everyone, right? keep reading, we have this here, listen diligently, eat what is good. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Remember what I said? They were wanting to know what kind of labor we do we have to do? That's the word that they use. What kind of work do we have to do to follow your plan? So Jesus is picking up these themes as he's teaching. It's all resonating with this passage back in Isaiah. Like any good preacher, he's got to have a good text. So he's making reference, without being verbatim on everything, he's making reference to these concepts. Every, your children will all be taught by the Lord. And he's saying here, everyone will be taught by God. In other words, uh, how do you know the things that are happening? What's this drawing effect of God? Well, it's because he has taught you. He has opened your eyes. He has made it make sense to you right? And so in you might take it the other way and say the reason that y'all aren't getting this is because you haven't been taught yet. God hasn't revealed it to you yet. But again, it just so happens that this chapter back in Isaiah that he's been referring to is the pa- or one of the passages in Isaiah that talks about how God in his Benevolence toward his people who were helpless he is offering to them a new way of life, a new plan. We would call it salvation. And he says in Isaiah 55:3, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's a great chapter, and if you read it, and go back and forth between this, I think you can see why Jesus has basically chosen this text. So back to verse 45 in John 6, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Some people wonder if that verse is one of those little parenthetical footnotes that John is known to put in to kind of explain things to his audience. Uh it's debatable, it doesn't really matter, but it does kind of make sense that it would go there. And then verse 47, we have one of these truly truly. It's like, "Hey y'all, listen up or I think was it is the, new, is the King James that says verily verily, you know, that's I just that just loves that." Um but hey y'all, whoever believes has eternal life. So, we've talked about the sovereignty of God, but now here it is, believe. you got to believe. And I think the assumption there is if you don't believe, then you don't have eternal life. I think that's a fair reading there. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. He's saying it again, just like verse 35. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. In other words, you're talking all about this manna, and because they're the ones that brought it up to him. Hey, you know, and he's saying, "Yeah, but everybody who ate that manna, they still died, so it wasn't really about the manna. There was no sa- salvation in the manna, but he's saying it's different now. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die." you got you to gotta just picture yourself hearing this right? I mean it's hard enough. To focus on this, we've got it in black and white, right? And we can we can reread it like what was that? They're hearing it live, so to speak. I can just picture them saying, "What did he say? What was that? Did he did he just say that?" Anyway, verse fifty-one. I am the living bread. Power, power-packed verse here that came down from heaven, so we know where it came from. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live. So now we know what it's for. You eat this bread; you partake of what came down from heaven. You will live. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. A little bit different word than body. It's it makes it um, it was the word that you would use for meat butchered meat. Remember what time of year this was? It was Passover. Do you know how many animals it would have taken to pull off a Passover? Thousands. Blood was everywhere. You ever open a package of meat and you you can smell the blood? Right? It's it's okay. I I mean, it's bad. It's meat. But think about that. You're in Jerusalem. What do you think you smelled? Now, they weren't in Jerusalem. They were in Capernaum. But still, those pictures would have been in their mind. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, their brains are exploding. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves... How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Fair question. Uh, So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, there we go again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is a shift that's happening here. There's a shift from the actual bread that they ate on the hillside to this conversation about manna and bread and so forth where previously on the mountain they actually ate bread. In this middle section here, they're act- they're talking about real bread. But now Jesus is shifting them to metaphorically eating bread. Bread, And I, there was a commentator that brought to light how we do these eating metaphors. Probably won't be able to find it. But we do it all the time. When we say some grandma sees their grandkid and what do they say? I could just eat him up. <laughs> right or somebody might get the latest novel and say man I would I devoured that then in the weekend right or we might say I saw this amazing landscape and I just let my eyes just feast on that for a while we use eating metaphors all the time and so jesus is transitioning them to this this metaphorically eating now just like i said there was this debate so to speak between um, god's sovereignty and the free will and the responsibility of a person to believe in this section that we're going a more subtle debate among theologians has been happening through the years and it's just how metaphorical was jesus speaking here was he just talking about um, you know fully taking in the message the ultimate being taught you know your eyes are open you're gonna take this in you're going to partake or was he talking about the Lord's Supper which you know by the time John wrote would have been going on for a, a few decades and even if this was written to Jews that weren't yet believers, they probably would have at least known of the Christian custom of what we call the Eucharist or or the Lord's Supper. So there's this little bit of debate about going on. So as you read, you, I can honestly see both sides of it. Um, like a lot of things, it may mean both. I think the, the big gist of it is metaphorical, but I don't think it's necessarily an accident that it calls to mind um, what Jesus instituted when he told the disciples you know this is my body broken for you right so just have that in the back of your mind I'll make another comment Uh, verse 54 it says whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day In verse 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The next verse. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me and draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. And then finally here in verse 54, I will raise him up on the last day. That sounds like an important day for all of us, right? That verse, you know, he that began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. Jesus is saying, when I pull it all together, I will be there for you on the last day. When the resurrection happens, I've got you. I've got you. And he said that everyone that he has given to me, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. Everyone who believes in me, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. If you ever have any question about if there's anything you've done after God saved you as to whether or not that was good enough, it was good enough. Because He's going to be there for you on that last day. Verse 55. Oh, one more thing. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then as we go to verse 55, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, whoever, verse 56, feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. This is not the normal word they use for for eating when it says whoever feeds. This was the word that was used often of animals when they were really crunching through something, really chewing it. Um, It can basically mean, and I wrote in my Bible, the munchies. Some people, when you watch them eat, you can also hear them eat. There are some of you, this bothers. I literally never noticed this. I may be one of those people who makes noise when I I don't know. But from now on, you can just remember this metaphor. This is what, as Christians, we're supposed to do. Now, I don't know exactly where the chrono- chronology is, but Matthew has given us the model prayer, which says, what? Give us this day our daily bread. So you got to think, with all this talk about bread, whether it was before or after, and I I don't remember, but you got to think the disciples probably put this together, this daily bread, I'm daily munching on Jesus, right? And that's not a bad thing to carry through, that we are to continually be munching on Jesus. My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Now, Jesus is really messing with them now. What was the whole point of kosher eating? What was the whole point? Get the blood out of the meat. Right? I'll spare you the details, but there were techniques, shall we say, to get the blood out of the meat. And now he's saying, my blood is true drink. were their minds blown again? They probably needed therapy after this. <laughs> if, they, if they didn't accept Jesus right then, if the Holy Spirit wasn't there to, to get it together for them, this probably really messed them up. Um, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father. Whoever feeds on me, crunching, munching, getting all of it into them, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So this closes off this big bracketing, which goes from verse 31 when they say, Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. And John closes this section out with, uh, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I can almost hear some of them saying, enough about this bread that I'm the bread of life. And Jesus saying, well, you guys brought it up. Anyway. (laughs) Verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Um, and we talked about that verse previously. Um, now, there's, there's the meeting after the meeting, right? Those of you that have been in corporate world know that the, often there are meetings, as important as those are, but the most important meetings have to after that, right? Those are the ones out in the hallway say where you process it. What do you think about that? What are we gonna do about that? (laughs) Uh, What just happened? You know, what's our game, right? It's the meeting after the meeting. That's the one you wanna be there for, which makes me wonder all these Zoom meetings that these corporations are having offline. um, You know, how do you have the after meeting? I don't know. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, A little parenthesis there from John. For Jesus knew from the beginning who these were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. So there was grumbling here. Many of his disciples heard it. It says in verse 60. Verse 41. The Jews were grumbling. D.A. Carson, who wrote one of the commentaries I've been using, said the dividing line for John is never race but response to Jesus. And in a world that seems to get all hung up on race, that's not a bad paradigm to have. And I've heard other people talk about this, and... um, arguing from Romans, that said they're really just, if you want to call them two races, two tribes of people in the world, you're either of Adam or of you're of Christ. That's it. If you think about it, that's it. You're either of Adam or you're of your Christ. Uh, you are either um, buying into what Jesus said or you're not. That is the ultimate dividing line of all history There are those who will bow. Well, everybody will bow, but there will be those who will be partakers of the kingdom, and there will be those that are want. All other race makes no sense whatsoever. And I I just love that. The dividing line for John is never race but response to Jesus. I think that's awesome. And true to form, when you have a divisive comment out there, um, what do we say? It's polarizing, right? There's not much middle ground here. You either think Jesus is bonkers or you think he's brilliant. That's the dividing line. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, many of his disciples, this doesn't mean the 12, right? There were other people who'd been following close to Jesus, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This walked with him may also be a bit of a metaphor. I had a, a friend who went to Israel with a teacher who tried to pattern his teaching as Jesus would have done it, presumably, and basically would say hi to them in the morning briefly and then just start walking like a couple of hours walking in the fields up the mountain and then when they would make it to the top of the mountain then there would be the teaching thing and what we don't see in the Gospels is is this thing but if you were a quote follower of Jesus that literally meant you followed him around picking up on what he was saying hearing his teaching but it was Hey, this is where we're going. And there was a lot of time getting to the place that they were going. So these people, instead, and they no longer walked with him. Some of these had actually been walking with Jesus all up and down the countryside there. And they just, nope, can't do it anymore. I, no, this is too hard. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? John tells us, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he is one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So... We know of one of Peter's famous confessions about Jesus. Um, You know, you are the Christ and so forth. Here we have another one where he says, Jesus says, what about y'all? You with me or not? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's, that's a mouthful, right? He confessed who Jesus was and also what Jesus was saying and he had also understood that his belief in that was important. At that time, did Peter know how the story was going to turn out? No. Did he have the theology of Paul that was to come? No. Could he have seen in the fullness of things how all of scripture had led to this moment. Just a thumbnail, perhaps. And the point that struck me is there's always going to be stuff we don't know. Period, right? There is going to be stuff we don't know about the future. There's going to be stuff we don't know about How things are going to turn out Over the next six months, six years, whatever We don't know What our country is going to look like We don't know what our church is going to look like We don't know What our family is going to look like But what do we know? We can know what Peter knew Where else would we go? So I, I, I think it's, it's really, and people have said this way more eloquently than me, when you look at all the, the various religions of the world and, and the various even pseudo-Christian cults, it all comes down to do they know the real Jesus or not and do they acknowledge the real Jesus, who he was, why he came, what he said, or not. And that's really all you need to know. Is it important to read our Bibles? Of course. Is it important to have the community of believers? Of course. Is it important to pay attention to the world and avail yourselves of discoveries and all those sorts of things? Of course. But when it gets to the tough ones, all you really need to do is to come back and say, what else can I do but just know who Jesus is. And know he's going to be there for me on the last day. All right. That's all I got. Comments? Questions? I thought someone would have commented after he said, could I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. I mean, you would think, you know, you've been together all the time. You would be, what, well, who is it, you? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, uh, what were the What was the response to that? Um, I'm guessing that was part of the after meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> say, what, what, what did he What did he mean by that? Good point. That's one little thing about the chosen. They kind of fill in the blanks. Some and um, Matthew pops up a lot. You okay. know. And John says, well, Matthew's going to take care of that. It is very interesting. I, I think you would enjoy it. One comment I, I forgot to make. Uh, Robbie Mungo is